so uh, you might have noticed that since Easter, we've been focusing our attention on the ways in which Jesus' resurrection changes everything, including uh, changes, of course, our relationship with God, our relationships with one another, and our relationship, actually, with creation. I loved what Aaron said last week. He said, Jesus' resurrection changes everything because the event itself is not just a blip on a map. It is the map. And because it is the map, we get to orient our lives around the reality of Jesus' resurrection. One example that Aaron gave last week was how we can follow the resurrection roadmap by growing in our ability to receive and offer forgiveness, and in doing so to find life, liberty, and joy. So this week, we're going to look at how Jesus' resurrection can change our perspective on who he really is and what it means to follow him as the resurrected Savior. We all have a perspective or a point of view. Think about this for a moment. Because none of you are positioned in exactly the same space as any other person in this room, we all have a perspective here this morning that no one else has. That's kind of cool, right? So you can see things that I can't see right now, and I can see things that you can't see right now. But the reality is none of us can see everything. This is just as true about our view of things in life, um, our perspective on ideas and our circumstances and on people. We all have different perspectives but none of us can see everything that's going on. Each one of us, we have a unique perspective, but none of us has a complete perspective. And this is why it's really important that we continue to listen and learn from one another. And it's also why it's really important that we pray. Because only God has both a unique and a complete perspective, and he can share that with us. Three days, three days after Jesus was crucified, two men left Jerusalem for Emmaus with a perspective that everything they had hoped for had failed. But because of an encounter on the road with the resurrected Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem later that day with a very different perspective or point of view. And as a result, their hope and their faith in him was restored. Why? Again, because Jesus' resurrection changes everything, even our perspective. So I've uh, invited Beverly to read the passage for us uh, this morning. We're in Luke chapter 24. We're looking at verses 13 to 35. Luke 24, 13 to 35. 
Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the word. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. <laughs> God, we are so thankful for your word. <clears throat> God, thank you for those that work so diligently to preserve your word. God, both in that first century and then ever since. So that here we are in 2023, opening a word with confidence that what we have before you are the words that you want us to hear and want us to respond to. And so help us to do this, we pray by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. What a great story. <clears throat> given, uh, given the context of this passage... <clears throat> We know that these two men uh, were given the name of one of them, Cleopas, and his traveling companion. We know that they had a Jewish background, 
And at some point, they had become followers of Jesus. It's very common. It's likely that these uh, men were among those who a week earlier had been laying down palms and cloaks as Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem. Uh, remember, riding the colt, Palm Sunday. There's little doubt that these two had followed Jesus in and out of Jerusalem that week as he prepared his disciples for what was about to take place. But, and through no fault of Jesus' effort, the disciples were not prepared. After Jesus' crucifixion, many, including these two travelers, had growing doubt, actually, for who Jesus really was. In fact, their faith in who they thought Jesus was and what he was going to accomplish had become so disoriented that you end up in this situation where they couldn't even recognize him when he was standing there right in front of him. That's how confused they were. I can relate to that. Have you ever missed the obvious? Oh, gosh. I feel like I could win that award. How many times have I gone to look for something in a cabinet or in the refrigerator or wherever? Oh, I don't know where it is. I, I thought it was right there. I don't know where it is. I lost. And then, uh, and then like a little bit later, you know, hey, Beverly, I was looking for that. Where is it? You know? Yeah, it's in the refrigerator. No, it's not. I looked. No, it's in the. No, I, I, honest, it's not there. Yeah, she opens it and it magically appears. Huh? How did you do that? Yeah, um, yeah. Have you ever missed the obvious? Yeah, probably many of us. Uh, some of them are more trivial than others. All right, so, but why? Why these two men? Why, why were they um, not able to see Jesus, right, for who he really is? Luke, the writer of the gospel... Uh, is clear that they were kept from recognizing him. Now, some scholars suggest that it was God who had sort of intervened and had blinded their eyes from being able to recognize Jesus. It was a divine act of God that um, prevented them from seeing Jesus. And it wasn't until God lifted the veil when Jesus broke the bread that they were then able to see him for who he truly is. And that's that's possible, that that is exactly what happened. However, others suggest that their vision wasn't clouded so much by God, but by their own notions of who they had thought Jesus was and what he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Sometimes our perspective can blind us from the truth. Is that true? Yeah. I wrote that and I thought, oh, that's true. <laughs> As we dive deeper into the story, we're going to see that there's at least three reasons, I think, why these two men traveling home to Emmaus were unable to recognize the one man standing there right in front of them. First, they didn't recognize God's plan. Second, they didn't recognize God's promise. We're going to see all of this in this passage. And third, they didn't recognize God's punctuality. All right, let's unpack this. So what's wrong with their perspective of God's plan? 
Well, notice how they answered uh, Jesus. Although, of course, at the time, they didn't know that it was Jesus that they were answering. So it's in verses 19 and 21. We'll put it up here on the screen. They said, he, again, it's so comical. He, referring to the Jesus right there, uh, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and, and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Their hope in Jesus, like so many others who had become followers of Jesus, was that he was the Messiah who would lead his followers in a revolt against the Roman occupiers of Israel. Just as God had used Moses to redeem Israel, and it's the first time in the Old Testament that the word redeem is used in reference to what, how God used Moses to redeem Israel. Many had developed a point of view that God was going to use this Jesus to finally redeem or deliver Israel from their Roman oppressors. Because of this perspective, these two men who had probably last seen Jesus hanging dead on a cross had given up hope in him as their national liberator. From their point of view, Jesus turned out to be just another prophet. Now, albeit powerful in word and deed, as they acknowledge, and yet dead, like all the other prophets before him. This made me wonder how many people today, perhaps, are unable to recognize who Jesus really is because they fail to understand his plan to redeem the world. Some people see Jesus merely as, a, as a, like a cosmic miracle worker. They reduce him just to that, who have, you know, they assume that God's agenda is simply to make them wealthy or make them healthy till death do they part. But when the money doesn't come pouring into their personal bank accounts or when they get sick without miraculously being healed or when some other crisis hits, many of them, like the two men who left Jerusalem, experience shattered hopes and a faltering faith. Christians around the world need to be careful that we worship our one true and living Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, and not some variation of him created in our own image and even nationalistic image. Jesus suffered death on the cross to liberate us, not from foreign powers, not to make one nation better than others, but from the grip of the devil, our own sin, and a destiny to be eternally separated from God. So Jesus accomplished. Jesus is our spiritual redeemer who sets us free, thank God, from the oppression of jealousy, hatred, envy, lust, 
unforgiveness, addiction, pride, shame, bitterness, and all the other ways that Satan and we end up ruining our lives and making them so much less than what God originally intended. Jesus isn't making any nation great. Rather, he is making a great kingdom that has no political, no geographic borders, that's going to be filled with people from every nation, every tribe, every people group, and every language, including the Dobie people in India. Glory to God. It's exciting. It's so exciting. Jesus frees anyone, anyone around the world who confesses and renounces their sin before God by showering them with forgiveness and by empowering them with the Holy Spirit to live a life of love and service to God and to others. Any who put their hope in a nationalized Jesus will always walk back to Emmaus with shattered hopes and a faltering faith. One reason people don't recognize Jesus simply is because they don't recognize his plan. You miss it. This was clearly true of Cleopas and his traveling companions. Let's move on to the other reason that why some people don't recognize Jesus is because they don't recognize God's promise. Let's dive into this. Jesus' response to the two disheartened travelers with their false perspective of who he was, was with a loving but firm rebuke. There's no other way to interpret it. We read it. He said, how foolish you are. Imagine, Jesus, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and be... How about this Bible study? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you see what Jesus is saying? In the Hebrew Bible, what you and I refer to as the Old Testament, Jesus said, our prophetic promises that made clear the role that the Messiah had both through his life and in his death. For example, uh, this one from the book of uh, Isaiah, one of the prophets Jesus was referring to. This is what Isaiah wrote. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces or hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Oh, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, every one of us, turned away and gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No doubt, this was just one of many scriptures that Jesus recited before these two to demonstrate the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, points to me, he would say. And it, he was trying to give them this very different perspective. Jesus' loving rebuke might be appropriate for some of us today who neglect to see God's promises in the Old Testament. Or, it's pretty common these days, who view the Old Testament as irrelevant or boring. And sadly, it's increasingly not just the Old Testament in the church that's getting neglected. Now, this is not a personal reflection of any of, any of you, but I will say this. In my four decades uh, working with college students, I have seen a steady decline in Christian students' knowledge of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And as a result, too often times, their faith, rather than being based on the promises of God in Scripture, it's based on personal experience, based on emotions, or it's based on a false sense of security that it's what I was raised to believe, and it's good enough for me. Now, don't get me wrong, students, your peers, you're not alone. There's a lot of adults who are developing kind of that same, um, uh, same sort of habit and growing increasingly biblically illiterate is one way to put it. There's a growing number of people, even in our own church, who just choose not to regularly open the Bible or study it and listen and learn from what God has to say to them. So I wonder if Jesus might have a loving but firm rebuke for some of us. How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken, because you refuse to listen and learn from my word. If that applies to you, take the gentle rebuke to heart, and, um, and let the Spirit lead you. The two men leaving Jerusalem didn't recognize Jesus because they didn't recognize God's promise about him throughout the Bible. How many Christians fail to recognize Jesus in their day-to-day activities because their perspective about him is too often influenced more by our culture, by movies, by books, by music, by podcasts, by the opinions of others, on and on, rather than what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is. Some people don't recognize Jesus because they don't recognize his plan. Some people don't recognize Jesus because they don't recognize God's promise in his word. And like the two men in this story, some don't recognize Jesus because they don't recognize God's punctuality. Did you notice what day it was when these men left Jerusalem? Sunday, the third day. Yeah. How interesting it was 
the third day that they chose to leave. Yeah, they acknowledge it's the third day. They, uh, they tell Jesus that uh, the three days earlier, Jesus had been crucified, as if Jesus wasn't already aware of that fact. But they told him, and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us, as women oftentimes do. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions, we know they would be Peter and John, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see him. And again, the story is just filled with so much irony. Again, don't miss the irony of these two men telling their new traveling companion, Jesus, uh, about the others who were not able to see Jesus. It's interesting how we can like, point out the faults in others and not see them in ourselves is really what's going on. So a third reason these men could not see Jesus was because they had given up on God's timing. That's the point. How many times had Jesus told his disciples that after his death on the cross, he would be raised to life on the third day? <laughs> yeah, in fact, earlier that morning, the angels who met the woman at the empty tomb, we didn't take time to read this, but it said, why do you look for the living among the dead? The angels asked. He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised up again. Ah, and then those women remembered his words. If only the two men on the road to Emmaus had remembered his words. They might have waited at least one more day, at least for the fourth day. Really? You're going to leave on the third day? But because of their short-sightedness, they left the game early, believing that since they had lost their star player, the game was over. I'll never forget the time uh, when I was reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to our son, Sean. He was, he was probably four years old at the time. If you're not familiar with this book, uh, I asked a new AI program that I'm testing to give a summary. If you don't know what AI is, forget it. But for those of you who do, it's pretty cool. Um, so here is what it came up with. The story is about, and now I'm quoting the AI program. Four English children who are evacuated to the countryside during the Second World War. They discover a wardrobe which leads to the magical land of Narnia, where they are destined to fulfill an old prophecy and become kings and queens. Along the way, they must face the evil white witch who has cast a spell on Narnia, turning it into a land of eternal winter. With the help of the noble lion Aslan, the children must battle the white witch and save Narnia from her tyranny. Not bad. Yeah, I mean, I didn't write any of that. AI gave that to me. That's great. Wait till I ask them to write my next sermon. All right. So, actually, I think this is a great summary of the book, having read it. Except 
Bard, the name of the AI program I'm playing with, left out that this story, who's written, of course, by Christian C.S. Lewis, um, the Christian author C.S. Lewis, it's actually a beautiful and powerful allegory about Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Bard left that out. We're going to have to teach Bard a few things, aren't we? Sean loved this story. Until we got to the part where Aslan is killed by the white witch. After Aslan died, uh, Sean suddenly got up my lap and he ran upstairs without saying a word. Even when I asked him uh, what was wrong, he just refused to answer me. He ran to his room, he slammed the door shut, blocking it with whatever he could. By the time I got there, he had barricaded himself into his room using whatever Lego sets he could find or boxes of matchboxes, or we had a rocking horse, um, uh, and he put that in there. It was a rocking horse that his stuffed little bunny would use in the daytime. I knocked on the door. Uh, I didn't get an answer. I knocked again. He said, go away. Through the door, I asked if I could come in so we could talk. He said he didn't want to talk. He then said, that book is stupid. When I asked why he felt that way, all I heard was something like, because Aslan is dead. Now, I had already read the story. So I knew that Aslan wasn't going to stay dead. Sorry, spoiler alert for those who haven't read it. <laughs> In fact, I knew that the best of Aslan was yet to come. But how was I to help my four-year-old son understand that the game wasn't over? Even though it seemed at the time like the star player was permanently out. How could I help him believe that in just a few days, something unimaginably awesome was going to happen to Aslan? But... For that to happen, we had to keep reading the story. Friends, when we lose confidence in God's timing, we can so easily lose sight of who Jesus really is. How many people have grown impatient with God because because they didn't get what they wanted when they wanted it? not trying to trivialize any situation. I'm just, isn't this true? How many of us have been tempted to give up on God when we, when we don't maybe get the test results? Or for those of us maybe a little bit older, we don't get the lab results? Or we don't get the promotion? Or we don't get the person? Or we don't get the house? Or we don't get the, you know, fill in the blank that we wanted? How many of us stopped maybe praying for a loved one to come to know Jesus because we've given up hope that our prayers will never be answered? How many of us are tempted to give up on God's timing? If there's ever been a time when waiting on God's timing has been a challenge for you, I'm right there with you, friends. I don't always understand, okay, I frequently don't understand God's timing. I don't. And I share the questions 
and the pain, honestly. So I try, like many of you, I just try to remember uh, words from Scripture. Words like, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, your own perspective. In all of your ways, submit to him. And, and he is somehow going to make your path straight. And we may not see it now, but it will happen. When I remember God's words to me, when we remember God's words to us, I'm and we're encouraged again by God's perfect timing. It can take a while to get there, but oftentimes we do. Sometimes maybe we have to wait even longer, but we can look back and we can see, oh, God was faithful. His punctuality, even if I can't see it from my perspective, it's reality. And it is then that I can begin to see Jesus, my risen Savior and Lord, walking alongside me in my pain and in my disappointment. And it's then that I begin to receive some comfort and some renewed hope and for faith to arise within me. I'd love to invite the worship team as we begin to prepare to respond to God's good word. Friends, um, sometimes we can grow tired waiting for God to answer our prayers. It's tempting as we wait and as we wait and as we keep on waiting. It's tempting to pack up, to leave Jerusalem, and to head for home, like these two men. You see this temptation throughout Scripture. The disciples of Jesus face that temptation. Read John 6. And we face it today, some of us more acutely than others. God redeemed the early departure of these two men by mercifully revealing to them his true identity, which in turn sent them flying back to Jerusalem with renewed hope, strength, and faith, and a fresh zeal to testify of their risen Savior, Jesus. I had no idea how to help Sean um, not give up on this story before it was over. But thankfully, he reluctantly rejoined me on my lap. And we were able, in time, to see the glorious reappearance of Aslan. And his defeat of the white witch and her spell on all of Narnia. That's worth getting excited about. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know what you're waiting on God for. But I do believe that our God is a redeeming God. And I pray that in time you too will again see Jesus for who he really is and that your hope and your faith in him will be renewed. Cleopas... And the other men who were with him on the road to Emmaus, they couldn't see Jesus for who he really was because they didn't recognize God's plan. They didn't recognize God's promise throughout all the scripture, and they didn't recognize God's punctuality. It wasn't until Jesus took the bread, right? Did you see this? He took it. He gave thanks, and then he broke it. 
And he began to give it to them, that their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, not just as the redeemer of Israel, but as the roaring lion who had suffered and died for their spiritual deliverance of people everywhere, and was now raised from the dead, proving that Satan had been defeated and that his spell had been broken. Somebody needs to say amen, because that is good news. It was in that moment that their perspective changed and they were finally able to see Jesus for who he really was, their living Lord and Savior. Jesus' resurrection, friends, changes everything. It changes our perspective of his plan, his promises, and his punctuality. Like the men in the story, like the men in the story, I pray, I pray, that we would all find and gain a fresh revelation of who Jesus really is, and that with renewed hope and strength and faith, that we're able to worship him like never before, and that we fly out of here eager to give a testimony of the goodness of God to our friends, our family, and our coworkers, because our Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's worship the Lord because there's nothing better to do.